0: Thank you very much for that kind invitation. Let me say at the outset uh, that um, I'm tremendously honored to be invited to give uh, this uh, lecture, uh, the first in this series, and uh, greatly um, uh, delighted to be here in Wilmington, North Carolina, where I haven't been in quite some time. Um, I do want to start by sharing consolation for the unfortunate loss of your by your colleagues within the University of North Carolina system to Villanova recently. Uh, and uh, I could go on on the subject, but um, what most people want me to talk about is where interest rates are headed, uh, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave that subject, that source subject, uh, as, it, as it is. Um, before I say anything, I have to offer uh, the usual, what we call the usual disclaimer, uh, which is that I'm speaking for myself, and the remarks shouldn't be attributed to the Federal Reserve System or um, my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. Last December, uh, the Federal Open Market Committee uh, decided to raise rates for the first time in seven years, and um, they increased the target federal funds rate uh, to uh, the range for the target federal funds rate to one quarter to one half of a percent. Uh, It had been uh, zero to a quarter of a percent. This is uh, the first increase in a long time, and now that this first interest rate increase is out of the way, the question on everyone's mind is how rapidly interest rates are going to rise in the coming year. Now, many observers have noted that uh, central banks in some other major countries have actually moved towards easier monetary policy in recent months. In January, for example, the Bank of Japan announced that it would begin charging an interest rate of negative one-tenth of a percentage point on reserves uh, held at, the federal, uh, at, the, at their central bank. Uh, in March, the European Central Bank, which has charged negative interest rates on reserves for nearly two years, announced further cuts uh, to several key interest rates, and it expanded its asset purchasing program, so going in the direction of greater monetary ease. These policy decisions were a response to slowing inflation and economic growth in their respective uh, regions. But the situation in the United States is different. As I'll discuss in more detail, our labor markets are strong and growing stronger, and the household sector is relatively healthy. And this is fueling steady growth in household spending, and that's uh, a substantial portion of uh, GDP, and certainly It's the case that many households um, in America uh, face significant economic challenges, but overall uh, the prospects for continued growth in employment and consumer spending in the United States look very good. As I'll discuss later, the U.S. position of economic leadership within the global economy makes divergence between the monetary policies of the United States and other major economies that much more likely. With that said, Uh, The question on everyone's minds is how quickly will rates uh, rise, likely. Now, as always, I have to say the future is uncertain, and neither I nor anyone else can give you a definitive answer. But the FOMC has provided some guidance um, based on our understanding of how economic conditions are likely to evolve and how we are likely to respond. In a statement issued on March 16th, the FOMC said, quote, The committee expects that economic conditions will evolve in a manner that will warrant only gradual increases in the federal funds rate. Only gradual increases. Essentially, the same language has been used since the committee first raised rates in December. Now, that statement raises the natural question of what gradual means. Now, the committee has not adopted a formal definition of gradual, but you can glean some information from the projections that the participants in the FOMC meeting uh, submit four times a year. A little terminology here. Uh, the Federal Open Market Committee consists of all of the governors of the Federal Reserve System. The governors serve on the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. And um, in addition, there are 12 Federal Reserve Bank presidents, five of which voted any time. The rest of which, part- all of us though, participate in the meetings fully. So we all provide statements. We all provide our policy recommendations, and it would not it's not until the roll call at the end of the discussion that you would actually know who's voting and who's not. Um, so we use the term participants for everyone who attends and participates in the meeting as principals. So that would be all 12 Reserve Bank presidents and the governors. And these participants are asked four times a year. We meet eight times. Every other meeting, four times a year, we're asked to submit projections. And uh, these are projections for uh, unemployment, real GDP growth, Um, inflation, um, and um, these are posted on the Federal Reserve Board's website under the heading Summary of Economic Projections, or sometimes abbreviated SEP. You can go see these. In December, we submitted um, projections, and we also submit projections when we do that for the federal funds rate at at year end. So in December, we submitted projections for year end 16 funds rate, year end 17, and so on the median of our projections that we submitted in December was for the federal funds rate target to rise by one percentage point by the end of 2016. So four quarter point moves by the end of 2016 and nearly another two percentage points by the end of 2018. So over the following two years, 17 and 18, almost um, two more uh, full percentage point increases. Now that projected path was notably slower then the pace of rate increases during the last tightening cycle, uh, which occurred from June of 2004 to June of 2006. During that cycle, the federal funds rate target rose at a pace of two percentage points per year. So uh, basically a quarter percentage point increase at every meeting um, that uh, we met at uh so we referred to this back in that time frame as a measured pace. So we're, we're going more gradual than a measured pace. We're going at a gradual pace. So it's, it's important to remember about this that the FOMC's rate projections are just that, projections and not promises. At liftoff last December when the committee predicted gradual increases, it also stated that the actual, and I'm quoting here, the actual path of the federal funds rate will depend on the economic outlook as informed by incoming data. Indeed, as the new year brought uh, a new round of global economic and financial disturbances, many FOMC participants modified their view of the most likely appropriate path uh, for policy. In the March summary of economic projections uh, at the meeting uh, last month, the median projection for the federal funds rate target at the end of this year was a half of a percentage point lower than it was in December. In other words, uh, it projected a half a percentage point increase from where we are now to the end of the year. So two more quarter point increases projected by the median uh, at the March meeting. Now this reflects, this change in projection, reflects exactly the kind of data dependent nature of participants' judgments concerning appropriate policy. So this contingent nature of policy is crucial. The future is uncertain, as we all know, and because of that, Uh, the appropriate path of policy should be expected to depend on how economic conditions evolve. Consequently, one should expect the Fed's interest rate target to rise at a pace that's gradual but dependent on the economic outlook. Moreover, one should expect that differing views regarding the economic outlook might give rise to differing views about the most likely pace at which the target should rise. My own view, as I'll discuss today, is that the medium-term U.S. outlook has not changed materially since December. If anything, inflation seems to be returning to our 2% goal somewhat more rapidly than we anticipated at that time. And as a result, my sense is that the less leisurely but still gradual pace of target rate increases that FOMC participants submitted at year end strikes me as more likely to be appropriate. In any case, this all makes the discussion of the economic outlook especially relevant. So I was asked this afternoon in a discussion with some students about this idea of differing views within the Federal Open Market Committee. And uh, I pointed out that uh, that has a very important relationship to the leadership uh, that um, an institution has. It's it's just self-evident that uh, a deliberative body is going to make stronger, better decisions um, if a range of divergent perspectives are brought to the table, and the culture of the federal open market committee is something I'm uh, often in awe of. Uh, It's one of collegiality, of mutual respect, and it involves an expectation that we're each going to bring our best independent judgment to bear. Sometimes that means disagreeing with our colleagues. Sometimes that means disagreeing with the person sitting in the chair. But the person sitting in the chair is the obligation, you know, as the leader of a team does or the leader of an organization or a company, to exercise the leadership to foster that independent exchange of views so that the decisions that are brought about, the decisions that are reached reflect a consensus, a center of gravity, but have been vetted and tested by alternative perspectives. And I think that's an important strength of the Federal Open Market Committee that is related to our governance and the presence of these 12 independent reserve banks, each of which with their own research department, their own economy to keep tabs on, their own set of contacts. Um, So this digression is basically connecting this notion of leadership um, to, to the way the FOMC operates. And I, I really appreciated the, ability, the opportunity to discuss this with students this afternoon. As I said, this, this question of, of how interest rate setting is going to depend on economic conditions I think makes the discussion of the economic outlook all the, all the more relevant. So I'll start with a broad perspective. Recall that economic activity in the U.S. hit a low point when the Great Recession ended in t- June of 2009. Since then, growth has been fairly steady real gross domestic product, real GDP we call it, uh, is an estimate of the total production of goods and services in the economy. That's grown by an annual rate of 2.1% since the recession ended. Employment has risen over 12 million jobs, and the unemployment rate has fallen from a high of 10% to where it is now 5.0% currently. Growth in output and employment is likely to continue this year, I believe. The basis of that view uh, is that the household sector is relatively healthy and is likely to remain so. Real consumer spending has risen by a solid 2.8% over the last 12 months due to strong fundamentals. Real disposable income, uh, after-tax income adjusted for inflation that households have. Has increased by 2.7% over the last 12 months. And household net worth, their assets minus their liabilities, has risen by over $30 trillion in the last seven years. Moreover, a strong labor market continues to be a factor supporting growth in consumer spending. Over the last 12 months, we've added 2.8 million new jobs, and the unemployment rate has fallen by five tenths of a percent. Putting this all together, consumer spending seems likely to be robust again this year. And since consumer spending by itself accounts for more than two-thirds of GDP, that's critical for overall GDP growth as well. The housing market also uh, depends on the well-being of households and is also likely to contribute to real GDP growth this year. Over the last four years, real residential investment has grown at over 8% at an annual rate. Now, granted, real residential investment fell sharply in the Great Recession, and it remains well below the typical values we saw in the housing boom. So the housing market may seem to some as if it's sort of sluggish. But new housing construction continues to expand. For the first two months of this year, new housing storage rose 16% from the same period a year ago. And home prices have been rising steadily as well. Over the last three years, the average rate of change for home prices has been 7.5%. Taking into account the outlook for household incomes, employment and wealth, Residential investment seems likely to continue to add to growth this year. So what about business spending? Fixed investment by the business sector, that's, that goes into real GDP, has grown at a solid 5.5% annual rate over the last six years, but that growth has not been steady. Early in the recovery, investment rebounded sharply, but it only grew at 1.5% last year. Two categories of business investment uh, look fairly solid. Investment in equipment. Uh, Seems to be on an upward trend after allowing for some of the usual quarterly volatility. And investment in intellectual property, this includes computer software, business research, original artistic creations, uh, rose by more than 3.5% last year, the best way we can measure it. Investment in what are called non-residential structures, this is the third big component of business investment, Um, offices, factories, and the like. This spending category, which includes oil, uh, new oil well drilling, grew rapidly from 2011 to 2014. But it's contracted somewhat since then because oil producers have naturally slashed capital spending in response to lower oil prices. Outside of drilling, investment in structures has been fairly robust. Looking ahead, then, prospects, I think, for non-residential investment, business investment spending, look reasonably positive. Businesses seem to continue to identify profitable opportunities for new investment. Corporate cash flows are strong, on balance. Financing is readily available to an array of firms. So I expect business investment to continue to expand this year, despite the drag from the energy sector. Rounding out the domestic spending picture, government spending – subtracted from GDP growth for several years after the stimulus-related spending peaked uh, just after the recession. Last year, though, real government consumption and investment spending rose 1.1%, and we saw positive growth at both the national and the state and local levels. The budget deal that was struck last December is going to provide a boost to federal spending this year, and state and local spending in much of the country should continue to benefit from growing revenue. Net exports, on the other hand, are likely to subtract from growth this year. Many domestic producers now face stiffer stiffer competition uh, from uh, overseas because the value of the dollar on foreign exchange markets has risen considerably over the last two years. But the dollar appears to have reversed course in the last couple of uh, months, and it's declined since it reached a high point uh, in early January. So it looks as if the dampening effect – on U.S. growth of uh, the rise in the value of the dollar could plausibly be behind us. So if you add all this up, looking across all these spending categories in the U.S., the evidence suggests that that in the near term, real GDP is likely to continue to grow at a pace very close to the 2.1 percent rate that we've seen since the end of the recession. Growth at that rate would generate further employment gains and a lower unemployment rate. The unemployment rate is fairly low already, however, And arguably, it's reached a level that's consistent with notions of longer-run, maximum sustainable employment. As a result, I think we should expect growth in employment and GDP to start tapering off uh, to a rate that's consistent with just the growth in the normal working age population. And that's about a half a percent per year. If productivity, GDP per worker, if that Uh, advances at about one and a quarter percent a year, and that seems pretty reasonable. It's just slightly faster than the growth we've seen in that figure for for this expansion. That implies convergence to a real GDP growth rate of around one and three quarters percent. The economic outlook would not be complete without a discussion of inflation. The FOMC's 2% inflation target is based on a particular inflation measure, the Price Index for Personal Consumption Expenditures. That's produced as part of the national income and product accounts that include the GDP figures I've been citing. This measure of inflation has been depressed by the dramatic fall in energy prices over the last two years. Energy prices appear to have bottomed out, however, and futures markets point to an upward near-term trend if you strip the volatile food and energy components out of uh, the standard inflation measures, uh, what you get is called the core price index. And that often provides a better gauge for where inflation, including food and energy, is likely to head towards in the near future. An important factor holding down these core inflation numbers has been the rise in the dollar on foreign exchange markets, and that's because that's reduced the prices of imported consumer goods. Those that low import price inflation, negative in some cases, have been feeding through to core inflation and depressing that inflation measure. Core inflation on a 12-month average basis was around 1.3 percent for most of last year, but it has firmed more recently. This measure rose to 1.7% in January and was 1.7% again in February. As I noted a moment ago, the value of the dollar has actually declined since it peaked in January, so the restraining effect of import prices has been waning. In short, inflation has been held down temporarily by two factors, the falling price of oil and the rising value of the dollar. And since both seem to have stabilized of late, neither factor seems likely to depress inflation going forward. After the effects of temporary shocks that move inflation um, over time wear off, inflation naturally tends to gravitate back towards the level of inflation that the public generally expects to prevail based on their understanding of the future conduct of monetary policy. As I discussed at length in a speech last month, I won't reiterate everything that's in that, I believe the evidence shows that uh, the inflation expectations are relatively well anchored right now, and they're at a level that's consistent with the FOMC's target of 2% over the near term. As a result, I expect U.S. inflation to average fairly close to 2% this year, absent further unanticipated disturbances. So now would be a good time for me to return to the question of how fast interest rates are likely to rise. As the FOMC has stated, the pace is going to depend critically on the evolution of the economic outlook as we see it in the incoming data. Um, But even if there is uncertainty about the pace at which monetary policy will rise, the case for higher rates over time should be fairly clear. For perspective, it's useful to look at something called real interest rates, that is, interest rates adjusted for the effect of expected inflation. The federal funds rate has been near zero for over seven years. The difference between the federal funds rate, that's our policy instrument, and expected inflation is the real, or inflation-adjusted, federal funds interest rate. And it's been negative for more than seven years. Movements in real interest rates... Now, ultimately are due to changes in the supply of and demand for savings and investment. Now, there's cyclical fluctuations, and these can these, these can reflect the ebb and flow of, of overall economic activity on the, the savings and investment balance. But there are important longer-term movements as well that are attributable to changes in productivity growth trends, demographics, balance of savers and, and, and uh, borrowers in the economy, um, and the efficiency and effectiveness of financial intermediation. This longer-term trend, real interest rate, is sometimes referred to as the natural rate. Uh, it's an unobserved variable. Uh, it's distinct from the real interest rate that's actually prevailing and observed at any one time. Over the last several decades, actual real interest rates have tended to move down. They've been trending down since the 80s. And that suggests that the natural real interest rate, this trend real interest rate has fallen as well. To tease out an unobserved variable, you need a model, a little theory, a little bit of auxiliary assumptions. Current estimates from a variety of models are that the natural rate is either near zero or is a small positive number. That observation has two implications for monetary policy. The first is that as this cyclical expansion continues, real interest rates May for some time remain below the levels that we've seen in previous expansions. So it could be the case that interest rates don't get up as high in this expansion as they have, that, as they did in previous expansions—the one in the 2000s or the 90s, or the, certainly the 1980s. This is consistent with the unusually low productivity growth we've been seeing, but that connection is another story. Second, actual real interest rates are below negative one, say about negative a quarter of a percent, plus or minus. These are now substantially below the natural rate, uh, which I said is near zero or just above. So current interest rates are extremely low, even after accounting for the downward uh, longer run trend in, in the natural rate. Given current economic conditions, there should be a strong presumption that the gap between the exceptionally low current level of real interest rates and the natural real interest rate needs to close soon. Employment has continued to grow robustly. The unemployment rate is very close to the full employment value. Core inflation is firming more rapidly than expected this year, and inflation expectations remain well anchored, and that should bolster confidence that inflation is going to rise towards 2% in the near term. For me, these considerations make a persuasive case for increasing the target range for the federal funds rate and related policy rates. As I noted at the beginning of my remarks, one argument that is often heard for the slower pace of rate increases is that the Fed should avoid diverging too far from many of the world's other major economies, where monetary policy is either on hold or in an easing cycle. In such a global policy environment, tightening by the Federal Reserve could contribute to volatile movements in financial asset prices. But the Fed's monetary policy mandate is solely focused on domestic economic conditions, employment and inflation in particular here in the United States. And I think that makes sense. Certainly our assessment for the outlook should factor in how policy divergence might affect domestic outcomes for which we are accountable, for instance, through its effect on exchange rates and import prices and the like. But policy divergence by itself is not a separate additional consideration. It matters for our policy choices to the extent that it affects the outlook for inflation and real economic activity, and my assessment of the policy outlook takes this into account. Now, two months ago, global economic and financial developments appeared to have heightened the downside risks to U.S. growth and inflation. Given the sharp swings in U.S. asset markets, it seemed to make sense at the time to take those linkages seriously. Since then, however, the adverse financial market developments we saw in the first two months of the year have largely reversed themselves. Equity markets have retraced, volatility measures have receded, and oil prices appear to have bottomed out. Moreover, the intervening tumult left little trace on real economic data, nor on real economic projections, which now largely mirror the December outlook for solid economic growth and continuing movement of inflation back toward the 2% goal. If anything, the inflation outlook is firm, suggesting that the emergence of upside risks on, on that front. When the Fed has delayed needed policy adjustments in the past, it has often been in response to financial market developments that turned out, with hindsight, to be false signals. The record shows I think that we that if we delay too long or raise rates too slowly we run the risk of needing to make larger potentially more disruptive rate increases in the future. Given the extent to which global risks to the United States have subsided I think prudence suggests staying the course with a gradual sequence of rate increases. So I want to close today by returning to the theme I started with the relative strength of the US economy compared to some other developing countries developed countries. What is behind this strength? In my view, our country's economic performance reflects the fact that the United States remains an attractive place to generate and implement innovations. Labor markets here are relatively flexible, and regulatory burdens have historically been low by international standards. Our institutions of higher learning, such as this one, are worldwide leaders in research and education. And they continue to attract exceptional students from both home and abroad. That said, we do face some challenges that I believe our educational system is the key to addressing. Patterns of wage differentials between workers with different levels of education have been described as a race between education and technology. In general, new technologies create demand for workers with the skills to operate those technologies, leading to an increase in their wages relative to workers with fewer skills. But over time, what you would expect is for those higher wages to spur more people to obtain the necessary education, increasing the relative supply of skilled workers, and narrowing that wage gap. But that's not what we're seeing in the United States today. Instead, the college premium, For example, the extra amount college graduates earn relative to workers without a college degree has been increasing since the 1980s, and it remains large. Combined with relatively low college enrollment rates and high college dropout rates, particularly for low income and minority students, the inescapable conclusion is that we are failing to keep up with our economy's demand for skilled workers. So what can we do to ensure our workforce has the skills necessary to perpetuate the United States economic leadership? A full discussion is beyond the scope of my talk today, but I will say that the Richmond Fed's review of the available research suggests a few key strategies. First, I think we must do a better job of informing middle and high school students and their families about what is required for success at college. Related. Uh, I think we need to ensure that the K-12 education system is capable of providing them with them skills, although I have to acknowledge that this has been easier said than done. I think we can also do a better job of providing those students with information about multiple post-secondary educational options so that students who are not prepared or do not wish to attend college can take advantage of other opportunities to acquire valuable skills. At the same time, I think there's evidence that's pretty strong that students who are well qualified for college overestimate the cost of attendance. Providing students with targeted information could improve their decision-making, let them know that college is more within reach than they thought. Finally, and perhaps most crucially in the longer run, investment in high-quality early childhood education would yield exceptional rates of return for society, and it would help broaden opportunity for students of all backgrounds. So I, I mention all this. Uh, because I believe these strategies uh, aimed at bolstering human capital uh, growth uh, can not only augment our nation's prosperity, uh, but I think they can equip a broader range of our citizens with the skills they need to share in the prosperity we experience. So those are my remarks. I very much greatly appreciate your attention. Thank you. question So it, it, um, the question has to do with the first quarter uh, GDP growth. Um, the, the numbers are coming in. We don't we don't have the actual first estimate of that. Um, but because a lot of the constituent data that goes into the the statisticians' construction of real GDP for first quarter are already in, uh, there's a, a a little cottage industry devoted to forecasting what the release is going to say before it actually says it. Um, And uh, so, we have a long way to go, um, but uh, some of the data indicates that there was a couple of surprises in the first quarter in in the direction of softness. Consumer spending seems more like 2 percent than 3, um, and uh, so it's a little weaker uh, just in that quarter, um, and uh, some weakness in business investment seems to have shown up. Um, So there's a lot of fluctuation in real GDP growth from quarter to quarter, first thing to note. Uh, secondly, there's there have been a, a series of years now, in recent years, in which the first quarter has been weak, followed by the second quarter being strong. Um, so I uh, um, I have an economist uh, who uh, repeatedly uh, enjoins us not to make too much of one-month or one-quarter number, and I urge you to do that, too. Um, I think looking at sort of the four-quarter change is, is a more uh, natural arbiter. As I said, fourth in the fourth quarter, the number was 25 percent or so above the previous year. Um, and so I think it'll moderate. I think it'll even out over the year. Whether we get three or four this year, I don't know. Uh, not sure if that's going to happen, but um, I'm still expecting growth to average about 2% this year uh, from fourth quarter last year to fourth quarter next year. Good question. Um, never had it asked that way. Um, so it, I mean, it, it, if uh, when you see a number like 19% chance of recession in the next 12 months, you have to think back. Um, so what's what, what are the odds in any 12 months that you have a recession? And it's not much below that. I mean, it's it's maybe 12 to 15% depending on how you choose. So it's not a very ele- 19 isn't a very elevated. Uh, chance of, of, of recession. What would cause it? Uh, well first let me say that um, anything that would cause it would fall in the category of unexpected developments first of all nobody expe- it's like the Spanish Inquisition nobody expects a recession until it actually happens. Um, it generally takes um, a, um, uh, a significant shift in spending away from one sector, and and the recession develops as the economy gropes towards an understanding of where those resources that have been freed up, workers, capital, where are we going to redeploy them next now that they're available? And so this, it comes about because there's a sudden and sharp contraction in the the amount of resources devoted to one particular sector. So uh, to illustrate the last recession, it was a huge decline in residential construction activity So we had a lot of workers that uh, we had to figure out, all right, as an economy, where are we going to deploy them next? What's going to grow next to take up the slack? So it's that adjustment process, that sectoral reallocation, uh, that's generally the cause of recessions these days. Um, Now, there's another kind of recession that's caused when um, the Fed has to tighten interest rates to reduce inflation. That doesn't seem likely in the next 12 months for sure. Um, Knock on wood. So um, what would cause a dramatic um, shift in spending? Um, so uh, it's hard to see, but, I mean, you just tick down the categories and ask yourself, is it likely that that spending is going to contract? Oil and gas, um, a few months ago, maybe a year ago, was something uh, where um, some commentators were expecting that to perhaps cause a recession. But oil and ga- the, the amount of resources we devote to exploration, oil and gas, and production, it's far smaller than residential construction, and it's fallen by—it's uh, it's probably over 80 percent by now. It's been a few weeks since I looked, and so there's not much further to fall for oil and gas, and we haven't—it hasn't caused a recession yet. So, falling oil prices isn't going to do it. And besides, falling oil prices are—they provide a benefit of reduce of increasing the real income associated with any given dollar income. So it it is, it is conceivable uh, that um, a fall in demand for our exports uh, could occur that's large enough um, to uh, make a dent in our growth. Um, But um, keep in mind, exports are uh, what you know, like 15 percent or so of um, U.S. GDP. And so, for example, exports to China are less than one percent of GDP. So that's that's about the size of the oil and gas sector. So China could stop buying anything from us, and it would be like the oil and gas sector. And we seem to have weathered that pretty well. So it's hard to see that, uh, that doing it. I mean, the, if you look broadly, um, there is some weakness in the global outlook, but um, for the most part, things uh, else, outside of Brazil seem pretty, pretty stable um, and uh, um, you know, reasonably positive. If you look at Europe and Japan, um, you know, even though they have their challenges, um, you know, you don't see uh, major contraction ahead there, so I, I don't think that's likely. Um, and then you look domestically, um, and there's conversations about commercial real estate. Uh, I, you know, I don't think of that as, as probable, but that's a you know a plausible source. And in the, in the past, like in the '90s, there's been episodes of overbuilding in commercial real estate where ratcheting back has contributed to recessionary forces. So um, I, I'd look at places like that, but um, not I, I I have to caution I none of these seem uh you know reasonably likely to me right now question them yes sir
1: hi there uh, first off I'd like to uh, I like thank you for coming um, so because it's called an uncertain world I'd like to ask you a question about the refugee or immigration crisis in Europe um, we were talking about this in one of my finance courses and I'd like to ask you um, immigration uh, usually means a trend in growth um, within a nation, yeah. but it seems like the growing trends seem to go the other way. Uh, do you have a view on that?
0: I'm sorry, it usually means what?
1: A growth. Immigration usually brings a growth. Growth okay. Right,
0: right, economic growth.
1: Yes, sir, in a nation, but it seems like it's going the opposite direction. Um,
0: what, why does it seem that way?
1: Especially in Germany, where uh, many of them cannot find jobs, oh, being kicked out, uh-huh. or um, they're actually just in the camps for a large portion of the time, and many people are trying to argue against uh, kicking them out or even having them. Gotcha. There. I
0: see. I see what you're talking about. You no, know, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, the difficulty you point to in Germany. So the question is: um, the conventional wisdom is, uh, in my, migration into your country. Spurs economic growth, and I I think that I think that premise is correct, um, but that says nothing about uh, the politics of immigration, and I think what we're seeing in Germany is um, uh, that the immigration seems associated with um, public expenditures that are, um, you know, riling a lot of different views, and uh, you know whether that 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 typically hasn't happened here uh, to a large extent, to an extent that d- disrupts. Um, uh, you know, is disruptive politically, but you know, I'll I'll just speak to the economics of the issue. I think it still remains the case that in the long run, immigrants um, bring growth to a country, um, and, and I think we should we should still think of that as as um, uh, the right perspective. It's worth thinking as well about um, uh, beyond just the consideration of growth in your country. Uh, think about well-being of people on the planet, and surely moving from economies where their opportunities are limited, uh, look risky and poor, and they feel unsafe, to economies where they feel safer and they have much more economic opportunity, um, surely that makes them better off. And to the extent that we care, care about the distribution of well-being, you know, we ought to count that as a positive for migration as well. That's a really good question. So uh, the question was about um, – so the gentleman asking a question, Tom, um heard from uh, bankers, works with bankers, I take it, around the country, and um, they complain about oppressive regulations since the crisis. So there's banking and there's the rest of the economy. Um, it's definitely the case that there's been a, a huge increase in regu- the regulatory um, obligations of the banking sector. Some of these were, have, were aimed squarely at um, – uh, remedying uh, what are perceived as the causes of the financial crisis. Um, and I have in mind here uh, the new regime for the larger institutions, the, you know, multi-trillion dollar banks at the top and and sort of the largest dozen or two, the so-called systemically important financial institutions, um, where there've been demand, it's been demands that they hold more capital, that they hold more liquidity so that they're less vulnerable to losing access to liquid um, borrowing markets. Um, I'd set those to one side, and then on the other side, there are a host of um, sort of uh, changes in regulatory uh, regime that uh, seem to have risen simply because the banking system was weakened politically by the play out of the crisis. And in those cases, um, uh, particularly sort of consumer protection side and elsewhere, I think there's um, a lot of learning going on as to sort of what the objective is and how well those could be tailored to institutions of different sizes. I look forward to that work being pursued diligently um, because I'm not quite sure we have it optimized just yet. Um, and there seems no doubt to me, from our contacts in the banking industry, that it's tilted the playing field in the sense that um, some of these costs are sort of fixed in nature, and so it, they, they, they fall heavily on a very smaller institution, and there's, they're tilting the economics of institution size within them. Banking industry. Now, I don't think it's going to lead to a, the wholesale uh, disappearance of the community banking sector. And thinking, you know, we're not going to just lose all the banks under a billion dollars overnight. But I do think um, at the bottom edge, it'll, it'll encourage roll ups and consolidations and um, uh, reduce sort of the lower tail of the distribution of bank size as we go forward. Yes, sir. There's a mic on the way.
2: I'm honored that you are here, and I, I don't think I need it. Okay. I'd like My to pleasure. Say that I'm honored that you're here, and it's a privilege to hear you speak. I need the mic. It's a privilege to hear you speak. My question gets to the point of inflation. You pointed towards low oil prices in addition to a strengthening dollar for the reason for inflation to be lower than expectations, um, and that it's a fact that it's really a manifestation of, well, um, anchored inflation expectations. But my question goes to the interest being paid on excess reserves. We have over $2 trillion sitting there at the Federal Reserve that interest is being paid on, that this is a new phenomenon that's occurred since 2009. What's going to happen when this money enters the market, and how, what role does that play on inflation
0: in the long term? It's a really good question. Um, so I, let me give you guys a little background for this. Uh, the Federal Reserve banks are banks. Uh, we have assets and liabilities. A little money in banking lesson here. On our liability side, um, some of you youngsters may not have any Federal Reserve notes in your pocket, but we have paper currency that we issue and many people use. So there's currency. It's about a, a $1.2 trillion now. Banks keep accounts with us. That's where. That's how we move $4 trillion a day. Um, they use it to settle accounts between each other, to move money around. Um when uh, you know when your mom writes you a check, she has a different bank account, chances are the money moves across our books to settle that check. So before the crisis, um, the amount of reserves in the banking system, so liabilities of ours, essentially checking accounts banks keep with us that they use to pay each other, was on the order of 30 to 50 billion dollars. And now, um, as this gentleman pointed out, it's two and a half trillion dollars. Um, so what happened? When we buy securities, we credit the account of the bank of the person we bought the securities to so we acquire security our assets go up we credit the account our liabilities go up so our bank reserves increase when we started buying securities quantitative easing bank asset our assets went up so the reserves in the banking system went up those reserves can't go anywhere else that's the thing to remember so a bank can transfer it to another bank, that bank can transfer it to another bank, but they can't transfer it to anyone else, because only banks can have accounts with the Federal Reserve. So there they are, the banks are in the banking, the reserves are in the banking system. So you're right that um, many uh, some uh, many observers uh, were afraid that us buying all these assets and Growing the supply of reserves in the economy in the banking system was going to cause inflation because the typical association is that more money chasing the same amount of goods leads to higher prices. Clear intuition. Um, But this is money that can't leave the banking system. Moreover, at the same time in the crisis, all of a sudden, and we encourage this, banks wanted to hold more liquid assets They held more securities, liquid securities, that they knew they could sell right away. And they they wanted more reserve account balances just to be sure that they could meet maturing obligations. So at the same time our supply of reserves went up, the demand for reserves went up as well. And that's the reason we haven't caused inflation. So one way to look at this is from various sort of banking statistics, you can glean – the size of the liquidity buffer that banking the banking system holds. So, what's the total amount of liquid assets that they hold, separate from loans, you know, which aren't liquid, um, or other investments? What's the liquid assets they could sell to meet liquidity demands? Bank reserve account balances with us. The reserves you're talking about are just 40 percent of those liquid uh, assets. So, we could increase reserves even more. They would just sell some securities to make room for them in their liquid buffers, and it wouldn't make any difference to them and it wouldn't cause inflation. Only if we something like tripled the supply of reserves would it push balances, push banks to alter their balance sheets in a way that would break out of the banking system and and and, and threaten to, to cause inflation. So it's it's a weird thing. I sort of talked about this in, in um, you know recent speech, but it's And there hasn't been as much modeling on this as as I'd like, but that seems to be what's going on, and the reason why the system, banking system was able to absorb this huge increase in the monetary liabilities that the reserve banks supply to the banking system without it sparking an increase in the amount of monetary assets the banking sector supplies to the economy, which would generate inflation by having too much money chase too few goods. I know that was compact, <laughs> but uh, hopefully that, that gets it at what you are asking. Your question back here? Yes.
2: Um, we have a lot of uncertainties in the world today, and um, we have a, a number of interesting candidates running for the presidency of the United States who have some interesting positions. How do you possibly factor election results into your economic forecasting?
0: It's a a really good question. Um, I I think what we generally rely on is um... (laughs) – Well, first of all, I I would just note in general the typical distance between what's said on the campaign trail – and what gets, and what gets through our system of government with its checks and balances and forces that, you know, uh, essentially require you to, um, uh, you know, command a broad sort of middle to get something passed. Um, having said that, um, things change when governments change, administrations change, and so um, I, I think there's always the possibility that a you know, a change of administration um, could lead to dramatic changes in economic policy. Um, you know, I, I've tended to discount the likelihood of um, much that I've heard on the campaign trail from actually coming uh, coming into law. Um, the analysis I've seen uh, by responsible uh, entities of uh, the fiscal implications of some of the proposals are kind of astounding, um, and you know that to me diminishes the like. My sense of the likelihood that they're going to come to pass. I think a more disturbing trend is what seems to be the case the, that that um, that you know sort of the party controlling the White House directs a sort of 180 degree um, turn in regulatory philosophy in a host of agencies, and over time, you know, this can lead to to a period where. Uh, people know regulations are coming. They're not quite sure what they look like. Um, they're not quite sure if there's going to be litigation. If it is, how it turns out. So there's a period at the beginning of an administration in which the change in the regulatory regime introduces uncertainty for businesses that that dampens uh, investment incentives. Um, I think we saw that, you know, at the beginning of this the present administration. You know, and, and I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not judging the regulatory changes, but. You know, the, sort of the dramatic philosophical changes from one administration to the other are capable of dampening growth for a little while until we sort out. Right, what's the new regime? Um, so that's 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 hard to manage. That's hard to aggregate. It's hard to measure. Um, but from our anecdotal reports of going through this last episode, it seems pretty clear that there's some, that some of that uh, affected growth in the early part of um, the you know the recession and the recovery. Um, hopefully, we're beyond that now and have a sense of where we are. But um, it, you know, in um, you know, in American experience, it hasn't it hasn't affected growth prospects so dramatically that, or so materially that you need to take into account. Oh, GDP growth is going to be, you know, so much different next year as a result. I, it, it's never gotten to that, so I think we'll be okay. One more. Let's say one more. We seem to have a more integrated global economy now than we've ever had, at least in the last half of the 20th century. Does this more integrated So I don't. I don't think. So the question was about uh, global integration. Um, I I don't think that it causes lower growth. I think it increases growth. Uh, I think it increases growth abroad and at home. I think that um, I I don't know of any evidence that it lengthens the business cycle. Um, I attribute that more to. Um, uh, to the fact that since early 1980s, there have been fewer um, episodes in which the central bank has had to induce volatility, introduce volatility in order to iron out inflation wiggles. I, I, I attribute it to monetary stability. I still think that's the reason for the great, what's called the great moderation and longer business cycle, shallower recessions after mid 1980s. So. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't attribute uh, dampening effect of growth to it. So I'm still in favor. Thank you very much. You've been a wonderful audience.